0: What I'm going to do tonight um, is open up the Bible um, to a pretty controversial passage. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter, um, and, and that's one of the things we like to do at Thrive is just to go straight through a book of the Bible and just allow it to set the agenda, um, which can be a little awkward when you come to a passage like tonight because it means you can't avoid it. You just got to look at it. We're, in a bu- uh, we're looking at this book called 1 Peter. Now, this is a letter written by Peter, the apostle, uh, to followers of Jesus who are in exile. And as a result of following Jesus, these, these were people to whom, uh, to whom the letter was written. They had begun to experience a kind of rejection from the world around them. You know, From what we can tell, these were uh, people who were f- insulted. They were, they were falsely accused. They were ostracized by their neighbors. And, and these are things that, that Christians still experience today. Maybe you've even experienced some of that um, for being a Christian And so that's why for for them, and as well as for us, this letter is kind of like an exile's handbook. Peter's goal here, he wants to explain how to live as followers of Jesus in a hostile environment. And he also wants to show them that that kind of life, that kind of life lived in exile, that if you have a life that's centered on Jesus, that even then in the thick of persecution, that life is what abundant life truly looks like. So, what we're going to do tonight is look at chapter 3. Um, that's where we're at in this book. And it's probably the most difficult section here. Um, and it has to do with husbands and wives. And uh, one of the reasons that this is such a controversial passage um, is that, that many of the things that it says sound a little bit foreign or antiquated or even downright offensive to modern Western people like us. Um, and although this is a passage that addresses both men and women, you'll, you'll see that in a minute, I think it's safe to say that this this passage particularly, um, is, is particularly challenging for women. There are some things that Peter says here about wives and about women that, that can seem a little bit bewildering at first glance. Um, and I just want to say, as we're looking at this, that, that my heart just goes out to anyone who is here tonight, um, who has been turned off by Christianity because of the impression that it's oppressive to women. Um, And in fact, what I want to demonstrate tonight, if I'm able, is that this passage, although it may sound a little bit strange at first, is actually exploding with hope and wisdom and ultimately good news for both women and men. So I want to read this together. If you have a Bible, um, I would invite you to turn to the book of 1 Peter. It's toward the very, very end, one of the very last little books in the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> okay, you guys there? You guys ready? He's really ready? You're, okay, whatever. Uh, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening." Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So there it is. And as you were listening to that, I do not doubt that there are a number of things that probably caught your attention um, and I actually, reading this, you know, find this, this same experience to be true for me. That, you know, you read through this and there are a number of places where you just kind of have to stop and ask yourself, you know, what on earth does he mean by this? You know, was he trying to trip over every single cultural tripwire that he could just to make this passage as hard to understand as possible? Sometimes what it seems like. Uh, So what I want to actually do to start out with is I want to actually invite you to kind of get a little raw and real here, and just if there's something in this passage that you just kind of are confused or even offended by, uh, raise a hand. I'd love to hear what that might be. You know, don't worry, you're not going to offend anyone else if you, you know, by by your comments, this is meant to be um, just open, open sharing. (laughs) <laughs> what does it mean by gentle and quiet spirit yeah right weaker vessel, weaker vessel. okay yeah submit. submit okay you know i'm feeling good about this because so far like all three of these are the are, are the things that like i've anticipated talking about tonight so oh man i'm doing okay so far anything else Do you guys just, you know, as you read through this, I don't know about you, there's almost like this kind of visceral feeling sometimes, there's like, ooh, there's just some things in there that seem a little cringy. Um, and I just want to encourage you, well, as we look at this, like, if, you, if you're if you here tonight and you're a guy, I just want you um, to, to be listening not just for your own sake, but just, you know, for, for the sake of having a, a greater heart for your sisters in Christ. And If you're a girl here tonight, this passage actually speaks to both men and, men and women, and so I want to encourage you to do that for uh, your brothers in Christ as well. So... Uh, we are going to find a couple of tricky things in these verses. I've actually put a list up here of uh, some of the very things that you've mentioned, and I've done that just so that we can get them up there, we can look at them, and then um, as you see, well, as, as we go through here, you'll see that we'll hit each one of these. So, tricky questions. Number one, this issue of what does submission mean? That's from verse one. Number two, this was Allison's question, what does a gentle and quiet spirit mean? What is that about? And then uh, last one, why are wives called the weaker vessel? At the very end there in verse seven. So, um, let's look at this. You'll notice that it's actually divided into two sections. The first six verses are addressed to wives. The last verse is addressed to husbands. Um, now, I know most of you here are not married, um, and if that's you tonight, um, I just want to invite you to actually step into this passage as though um, maybe you are a married person, and I want you just to sort of hold on to these things because I know many of us one day will be married. Um, and so, don't, don't forget these things. Don't just kind of tune up because you say, oh, I'm not in this, this current stage of life yet. So first of all, let's look at this this first section, these first six verses, which is a word to wives. Now, um, as I unpack this, I'm actually going to be a little bit more methodical than I usually am, because you have to follow the text really, really closely to see what it is saying and what it isn't saying, okay? I mean, the other reason that I want to be a little bit more methodical than usual is I want to actually show you how the answer to all of those controversial questions are actually found right here in the text. Like, you don't have to be you know, some crazy Bible scholar, to, f- to figure out some answers to these things. But you do need to patiently and carefully look to see what the text actually says. So take a look here with me at the first two verses. So uh, they're up on the screen, and it says, "...likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct." So there's a verb in here, there's an action word in that first sentence, it's the imperative verb, be subject, or as it says in the NIV, be submissive. And, and this is a word that's addressed to wives. Now now even just seeing those words kind of writ large on the screen up there, I think there's a, a slide for that, um, you know, just kind of feel a little weird, um, and in fact, you know, the, the next picture is, is actually kind of what my knee-jerk reaction would be, it's just kind of that... Uh, you know, the, the flat line, like, huh, you know, what do you, what do you do with that? So there are a lot of questions that could be asked from just this simple little word, submit. You know, is Peter saying here that husbands are to have, like, absolute authority over their wives in every circumstance? Is that what he's saying? You know, is he, is he sanctioning horrific things like, like domestic violence or spousal abuse? You know, is Peter telling wives that they should submit to these kinds of unspeakable acts? And I want to say right off the bat that the answer to all three of those questions is no, absolutely not. And, and you'll, you'll see that as you go through this passage. But for now, um, let me just start out by asking one question about this verse, and that is the question, what does this, this little word, be submissive, actually mean? Like, what does the Bible envision that would look like in a marriage? Uh, now, now, one place you can start to answer that is actually just to look at the word itself. So the word for be subject it's simply a word that means to place under or to arrange under. And this is why that, that word submission, both in Greek and in English, that implies putting oneself under the authority of someone or something. Um, and in fact, the, the, this passage would kind of seem to jive with that definition. Because notice in verse 1, it actually begins with a transition word. It says, Likewise. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, this implies that to understand what Peter means by being subject, we have to actually look at the context of what he's already said before. So if you were to go back to the second half of chapter 2, there's actually a whole section where this theme of submission is all over the place, and it appears in a whole lot of different contexts. So, so the, 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 to, to really dial into what, what, what the thought is, you have to go back to chapter 2, verse 12, where Peter says this, He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And the idea here is that that when you live like Christ in a world that does not, that that is actually going to win other people to Jesus. So what that means is that one of the major focuses for this whole passage is actually evangelism. It's actually like, how do I be a witness to people who don't know Jesus? And now to illustrate that, in the next several verses, Peter gives us three examples of how living in a posture of respect and submission can actually do that, can actually win people for Jesus. So the first example is in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. This is is about citizens in a government. You know, He says that Christians are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. There's that word subject there. And, that, you know, that's whether to, to an emperor uh, as supreme or to the governors who are sent by him. And then the second example, this is about workers in a workplace. Christians are to be subject to their masters, or, you know, in modern day English we'd say, like, you know, to our bosses. Um, with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And then finally, the third example is, is what we're looking at where he picks up this this word, likewise, or in the same way, I'm continuing the same thought, he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So there's a little bit of context here where you see three times that 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 word, be subject, is used. Now, Now, by the way, that's not, of course, to say that this little word, likewise, that it's not saying that, that wives are called to submit to their husbands in exactly the same way that servants would submit to their masters. You know, marriage is not like an employer-employee relationship, thank goodness. Um, but, but instead, the common thread here is how to be a witness in a hostile environment. How to be a witness in a hostile environment. So think about this. Like when Peter wrote this letter, the emperor Nero was on the throne. I mean, he was one of the most anti-Christian emperors that there ever, ever was And yet Peter still is calling Christians to honor him. And he also talks about unfair bosses. He's saying that, man, you know, even in a situation like that, how can you find a way to show respect even to someone who doesn't deserve it? And so that same focus on on witnessing in a hostile environment actually continues into chapter 3. Where sure enough, in verses 1 and 2, Peter says that the reason, he gives a reason here, for this commandment about wives being subject to their husbands is so that... Even if some, as in some husbands, do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So, in other words, the hostile environment here in chapter three is the home. You know, you know imagine that, like, you know, you're back in the first century, you know, and, and let's say that, like, you <clears throat> meet a young woman who gets led to Christ by one of her girlfriends, but her husband doesn't believe. You know, or, or or imagine that you know you meet a young guy who comes to Christ through a coworker, but his wife still isn't convinced. That's kind of the context here. Peter wants to give instructions for how you, as a believer, can be a light to an unbelieving spouse. And now, back in that time, you know, a much more patriarchal culture than our culture now, it would have been far harder for a wife to have had that kind of witness to her husband. Which is perhaps, I think, why Peter gives more instructions here to wives than to husbands. She knows that he knows that they have a little bit more of a difficult task. Uh, but, but you know, just by the way, it's interesting to note that if you go to the book of Ephesians, the section there on marriage is actually reversed, where there's a lot more ink spilled giving instructions to husbands who need a little bit more straightening out there, and only a few verses given to wives. So, th- this context here in verses one and two. Um, helps make sense of what's happening. Where, where Peter's point is actually the, this, this very profound idea that wives can make a huge impact on the spiritual lives of their husbands. You know, I, I remember my mom saying years and years ago that she, she began to pray this prayer, you know, God, well, you know, would you change my husband? And uh, instead she said that eventually what happened was it kind of backfired and God wound up changing her instead. And you know, this is very often how I'm told marriage works. You know, you try to change your spouse and a lot of times it'll just backfire and change you. But but here, Peter is actually encouraging wives to conspire with the Holy Spirit's work in bringing their husbands to Christ. And, and he says here that this is not to be done through kind of all of, you know, like incessantly talking about Jesus all the time or, you know, sneakily setting the car radio to K-Love, you know, or, or you know, nagging him all the time about, you know, man, when are you going to become a Christian, you know? But instead, he says that the, the, the secret to this, the secret to that kind of winsome witness is through how you live your life, through a pure and godly way of living. So that, that, that's kind of a little bit of what you see happening in these first two verses. And you can see how that context from the previous chapter really matters here. But I actually have not answered our question yet, have I? That still kind of leaves open this question of what exactly is meant here in verse 1 by this tricky little word, Submit. And what does that actually look like in marriage? And even kind of more fundamentally, why is this even in the Bible? You know, why submission? You know, and why is it that it's wives who are called to this and, and not specifically the husbands? Now, I just want to say here, this, this is where it really gets a little bit controversial and tricky. I, I want to say that if, if, that if I were up here this evening and I were trying to explain this or justify what the Bible is saying from simply a human starting point, um, you know, I, I would probably have to admit that this would be a pretty hard question to answer because it's, it's really easy through our cultural lenses to just say that, you know, man, the roles that God has assigned to men and women in marriage are, are, are kind of, they might seem a little arbitrary, maybe even a little unfair. But the Bible doesn't start at our starting point. It actually offers a divine starting point that helps see marriage in a completely new way. You know, a lot of times I think we have this idea that, that you know god invents marriage and then he says wow you know i really this is this was a, one of my best ideas like i really want to take this great idea called marriage and i think i'm going to kind of model the relationship of christ and the church after this thing called marriage what a great idea and that is not how it works It is not the case that that, that God kind of invented marriage and then had this afterthought of, oh, you know, what a great way to illustrate Christ in the church. It's completely the opposite. From eternity past, God has always planned for his church to be the bride of Christ. He's always intended for his people to get to enjoy this intimacy, intimately surpassing anything ever experienced in a human marriage. So he didn't invent the relationship between Christ and the church to be an illustration for marriage, he invented marriage to be an illustration of Christ and the church. That's the starting point. And if that's true, then that is a radical way to think about marriage. Because it means that the reason marriage exists is in order to show forth Jesus. It's to show forth Jesus in the glorious relationship he longs to have with his church. And moreover, this view of marriage is the only framework that enables us to grasp why the Bible assigns different roles to husbands and wives. And and to to see what it says, look at at simply Ephesians chapter 5. This is where it is most clearly laid out. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, this is a section where it's speaking to women. And it says, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior.'" And then he draws a comparison here. He says, now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Now, you know, again, a lot, lot, lot of questions here. But I just want to point this out because according to Ephesians, this idea of headship and submission, those things exist so that husbands and wives can be a model before a watching world of just what kind of relationship God longs to have with us. And the picture is of, of, of husbands being called to lovingly lay down their lives for their wives. I mean, you want to talk about like, you know, all the thorny things associated with submission. Like, if you're, if you're a man in this room tonight and you aspire to be a husband, maybe you are a husband. I mean, that is your calling, to die to yourself for the sake of a wife. You know, so the idea is husbands are called to lovingly lay down their lives for their wives like Jesus did for us. And in turn, wives are called to submit to their husbands' loving leadership like what the church does with Jesus. So do you see how this is not just like, you know, oh, just some sort of arbitrary thing. This is meant to point to the greatest reality that there ever could be. And just what an honor that God has allowed us messy humans with our messy relationships to like in our small and sometimes messy way get to just have the tiniest ability to capture you know, such an amazing, amazing reality. So hopefully that kind of helps give a little bit of a framework. But let me also ask this question. You know, why is it that, that, that God chose to do it in the way where it's male headship and female submission? It you know, couldn't have been the other way around. You know? Couldn't it have been you know, female headship, male submission? The answer to that is I, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I'm not necessarily going to claim to be wise enough to know why God has done it the way that I've, he's done it. But what I do know is that both husband and wife have the opportunity to play the Jesus role. And what, you know, what I mean by Jesus' role is that think about this. Like Jesus is our perfect husband. He can be trusted always to lead us, but he also submitted himself to his father's will and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And if Jesus actually played both of those roles, the role that the husband plays, the role that the wife plays, then that means that neither role is better than the other. You know, it's not as though, you know, one is superior, one is better, no. Putting all this together means that, that Jesus is the secret to understanding what Christian marriage is meant to look like. You know, no human being is a perfect husband, no human being is a perfect wife, but what if your spouse were like Jesus? You know, I just want to speak to the ladies here, like ladies, have you ever dated a guy who's kind of like a wishy-washy guy? You know, sometimes he's hot, sometimes he's cold, and in the end he just never commits. You know, like... I don't want to have anyone raise any hands here. But, you know, I'm sure some of you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes I think I'm guilty of being that guy. Anyway, you know, now imagine Jesus, whose love for you is just so clear, so evident, and so safe. I mean, wouldn't you want to submit to someone like that? Or men, you know, imagine a spouse who's so humble, so gentle, so willing to serve others' needs above her own. Wouldn't you want to lay down your life for someone like that? Jesus is the key. I mean, he's the one who makes submission and headship and all these things make sense. And when the Bible's formula for marriage is present in both husband and wife, you know, where the husband lays down his life and, and where the wife responds in kind, I mean, that is a beautiful, never-ending cycle of love that the world cannot explain. And so submission is an integral part of that picture. Now, does that mean it's easy? The answer, of course, is no. It's not easy. It's not easy for wives. It's not easy for husbands. It's hard. It's countercultural, and I also want to say it's so easily distorted because of false ideas about submission that we may have inherited from like the churches we grew up in or the families of origin that we came from. And the good news is is that this passage, fortunately, can be a corrective for that. Because it points out not only what submission is, but it also points out more, just as importantly, what submission isn't. I want to show you a couple of these examples here. So look at this. If verse 1 is true, then one of the things you find out here is that biblical submission is not the wife necessarily agreeing with her husband on everything. Now, why do I say this? The reason I say this is because in verse 1, she's disagreeing with him on the most important issue that there could be, their faith. So it doesn't just mean, oh, you know, every single thing that my husband thinks, I have to think. No, not at all. It also can't mean, number two, the wife having no influence. I mean, here, she said to potentially have an enormous influence on the most vital part of her husband's life. Nor, number three, can submission mean checking your brain at the door. Because the wife here is obviously independent enough to believe for herself even if her husband does not. Now, all of this comes just from the very first verse, but let me actually, I'm gonna keep going here. Look at the rest of these verses. According to verse five, exemplary wives are those who place their hope in God, and that means that submission cannot be deriving all of one's spiritual strength from a husband. It doesn't say that. According to verse six, submission also cannot be passivity or, or, or living in fear, since that verse says that wives are called to do good, that's an active verb, and not to fear anything. Or, you know, I also even think of like the, 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 the passage in Proverbs, the so-called Proverbs 31 woman. You know, if you've read that chapter, it's impossible to read that chapter and, and come away thinking that this is someone who is passive. I mean, oh my goodness, I think a lot of men should read that chapter and realize, wow, like, <laughs> you know, like this very opposite a lot of times from like the, 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 the versions of, of womanhood and femininity that are put forward sometimes in conservative churches. And then finally, verse 7, submission also cannot mean inferiority. Because very clearly in that verse, Peter says that both husbands and wives are equal heirs of the gift of life. So, do you see there are seven things here that this passage has gone out of the way to tell you submission is not? And and by the way, while we're talking about what it's not, it's also a bit easier now to see why I said earlier that submission and abuse do not go together. Submission never means promoting sin. You know, this is why in verse 1, wives are not to go along with their husband's unbelief. That would be wrong. And, and we're also helped, by the way, by verse 8, the verse in the very next section. This is kind of this hinge verse that connects the section that we're looking at with the very next one after it. And from it, what we, what we, what we see is that whatever head submission relationship is meant to look like in a marriage, it can mean nothing less than this. Where he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I mean, how can you read that verse and and believe that that Peter would somehow be endorsing something like domestic violence? That has no place in this passage. You know, Peter and John knew that they were called to submit to the governing authorities, but when the governing authorities commanded them to sin, they refused, and they said in in Acts chapter five, we must obey God rather than men. And their example shows that there, there are times when a form of civil disobedience may be the appropriate course of action. And in the same way, we are not called to submit if it leads us to sin or others to sin against us. And if you have been experiencing abuse from a significant other in any way, you know, or from someone else in your life, I I just want to encourage you, um, talk to someone about it, a leader, myself, about that so that you can get help. Um, Please don't look at this passage and think that this is something that you have to suffer through. So there you go. Um, Those are just the first two verses of this section. But I want to go on here, because there are are more landmines that I have to uh, carefully step over here. So uh, let's look at verses three and four. So verses three and four say this. Uh, Now, he kind of switches gears a little bit, and he says, do not let your adorning, he's still speaking to wives here, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, what is this doing here? You know, why has Peter kind of all of a sudden started talking about hair and jewelry and clothing? I mean, he's a dude. What does he even know about any of these things? I don't know. But but notice the thought flow here, okay? Like in verses 1 and 2, Peter is talking about how wives can win their unbelieving husbands to Christ, not by like, you know, constant nagging or prodding but by the beautiful way she lives. And now, he's developing that thought even further. He's saying the kind of beautiful life I'm talking about is not like this outward sort of beauty. You you can't win someone to Christ by wowing them with your looks. The beauty that I'm talking about is an inward beauty, a beauty that comes from the heart. Now, you know, just a quick by the way on this. You know, there have been some who have proposed that this passage teaches uh, that women should not wear braids or jewelry at all, you know, as though a justification for like a super conservative Christianity of bonnets and dresses and skirts and that kind of thing. Nothing against bonnets, dresses, or skirts. You know, I have friends who uh, come from that kind of tradition. But I just want to point out that that's not what this is saying. And, and once again, it's actually the text that that tells you so. Um, so notice here it says, "Do not let the adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear." You know, is Peter saying that like? You shouldn't wear clothing. Uh, I would hope not. Um, wh- which means that he's not, therefore, saying that it's wrong to wear jewelry or makeup or and, and, and so on. Instead, what he's saying is, don't idolatri- idol- idolize. Don't don't idolize what's only skin deep. You know, don't you realize that there is a beauty here, a beauty that is a million times more breathtaking than that, and it's the beauty of your heart. Now, this is so countercultural. And this is countercultural because people, like right here, right now—I'm not not right here in this room, but I'm just saying, like right here in our country—are spending billions of dollars trying to persuade you that a beautiful woman is a beautiful body. I mean, this is so obvious; I hardly feel like I need to back this up with examples. You know, this is like every Super Bowl halftime show of the last ten years. You know, this is the Kardashians on Instagram. This is like virtually every movie that comes out of Hollywood. This is. Teen sexting, this is the pornography industry. And, and, and it's the reason behind the total carnage that's happening right now in our society. You know, in the form of eating disorders, in the form of depression, in the form of anxiety. Did you know that 81% of 10-year-old girls, in the U- 10-year-old girls in the U.S. say that they're afraid of being fat? Did you know that only 11% of girls worldwide would call themselves beautiful? And did you know that 6 in 10 girls avoid social activities because they're afraid of how they look? I mean, we live in a culture that is so oversexualized, and, and And it's just completely wreaking havoc. And against this, Peter says something amazing. What he says is that there is such a thing as an inner beauty. And he calls this the hidden person of the heart. Now, whereas the culture says that a beautiful woman is a beautiful body, the Bible says a beautiful woman is a beautiful person deep down on the inside. And I think this is countercultural, even for Christians because I don't even know that we truly believe this half the time. You know, I'm not sure that there are many Christian women or men for that matter who hold out the hope that their heart could be a source of beauty. Um, I want to read you a quote. This is from um, a couple that does Christian counseling and they say, having listened to the hearts of women for many, many years, both in the context of friendship and in the counseling office, we are struck by how deeply And universally, women struggle with their self-worth. And then in a different place, just uh, the the wife of this couple, um, speaking out of her own experience as a Christian woman, and here's what she says. She says, every woman I've ever met feels it, something deeper than just a sense of failing at what she does, an underlying gut feeling of failing at who she is. I'm not enough, and I am too much at the same time. Not pretty enough, not thin enough, not kind enough, not gracious enough, not disciplined enough, but too emotional, too needy, too sensitive, too strong, too opinionated, too messy. And she goes on to write that the result is shame, the universal companion of women. It haunts us, nipping at our heels, feeding on our deepest fear that we will end up abandoned and alone of course, these are not my words, you know, and I'm not saying that anyone here needs um, to agree with that or wrestle with that. This is just the testimony of one person um, who has deeply thought through and wrestled with these things for herself. But, but man, when I simply look at Scripture, I, just, I see hints that Peter is putting his finger on something so deep and profound here. I mean, he's talking about wives wooing their husbands to repentance because of the beauty of their lives. Because there's just like such a Christ-like grace that it can't help but lead their unsaved husbands to Jesus. And man, when I think about that, like, you know where my mind goes is it goes back to the garden. To the Garden of Eden because it's where the exact opposite situation unfolded. If you go back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden, God made Eve to be Adam's helper. That's what the word means, you know, she was to be his helper. It's a phrase that means a helper corresponding to him. And that word helper, now that's a word that actually can mean savior. It's used of God in other places in the scripture. Someone who gives life. But then, of course, sin comes in. And what does the woman do? Instead of leading her husband to life, she, actually, she offers him the fruit and leads Adam to his death. And the result of this is profound shame. The shame that leads to Adam and Eve hiding from God and from each other. And I mean, just think about what Eve must have been thinking in that moment. You know, how haunted she must have been by the relationships that she damaged, the wounds that she created, the beauty that she destroyed. You know, no wonder she hid herself from God. No wonder she didn't want God to see her, to look into her, to see the true barrenness and ugliness of her heart. And I may be wrong, but I, you know, I have a holy hunch here. That Eve has passed along to all her daughters that same fear. That deep down, I, you know, how could I ever offer life? You know, how could I ever offer beauty? How could I ever be enough? And that likewise, I think sometimes her daughters employ her same tactic of hiding. You know, to hide behind busyness or singleness or boyfriends or outward appearances or whatever your fig leaf of choice may be. You know, to hide your heart away, to stuff it, and to never let it be seen. But in just this profound way, Peter offers just this complete glorious reversal. And he says that, you know what? God has the power to renew your heart. And he can make it a source not of death, but of life, of beauty, to a world that's dying of thirst. So that not just unbelieving husbands, but all people would see in Eve's daughters an inner radiant, Christ-like beauty that drips with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I mean, isn't that amazing? I think sometimes, you know, we've grown up hearing verses like the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, but we forget about the fact that God actually wants to redeem and transform our hearts. And Peter says, wow, wow. If you only knew how beautiful God wants to make the human heart. And he's speaking specifically to women here. He's not talking to men. I'm not saying that men, you know, men, we can have beautiful hearts too. But this is addressed to women. This is addressed to women. And and Peter says here that the kind of inner beauty he's talking about is of very precious value in God's sight. You know, I kind of wish that there was something like that that he would say to men. But he doesn't say that to men. He says to women that there is something that you have that is of great, very precious value in the sight of God. You know, you'll notice that he, in verse 4, says that this kind of beauty is an imperishable kind of beauty. It can't pass away. And it's here where he uses this, this, this interesting sticky phrase. It's the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, now, here again, there's all kinds of confusion and heartache that can surround this little phrase. Because, you know, man, what happens? You know, what if you're a woman who's like an extrovert? And, you know, maybe you would, like, kind of raise your hand and say, I'm kind of a loud mouth. I don't think I'm very gentle and very quiet. Now, does that mean that, like, if you want to obey this passage, you have to, like, kind of, like, zip your lip and kind of keep quiet and and kind of become all serene and introverted? No. Notice that Peter does not say the beauty of a gentle and quiet mouth. (laughs) And And he doesn't even say the beauty of a gentle and quiet personality. That was for you, Mika. But no, no, look at this. He says the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And what that signals here is that he's referring to something inward. He's referring to something inward that's a heart posture of resting and trusting in God. That is a very precious value in God's sight. And the following verse helps to clarify this. The key phrase that just makes sense of this whole passage is in verse five. Where where Peter writes that women who live according to this pattern that he's giving here, put their hope in God. Put their hope in God. That is the source of where that kind of inner beauty comes from. And what he's saying is that if you want to have that kind of heart, a heart that joyfully submits, a heart that radiates beauty, the way to get there is to put your hope in Jesus. To cherish Jesus to feed on him, to make him your treasure. And in verse 6, Peter mentions Sarah, uh, someone from the Old Testament, as an example of that, of what that looks like. And he says here, um, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, Uh, interesting way to put that, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, this is interesting because there's all kinds of stories about Sarah in the Old Testament, and, you know, is Peter thinking of a particular story in the life of Abraham and Sarah? Um, you know, and it could could be, um, but 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 I, I think that if you really want to, you know, have a, a decent answer to that question, um, you know, pull out pull out like a Bible dictionary or concordance, and just notice here that, that there's a particular word that that Sarah uses. He says that he, she, she calls Abraham her Lord. Now, the only instance where Sarah ever uses that word in reference to her husband is in Genesis chapter 18 where Sarah is told by God that she'll have a son. Now, what's crazy about this is that in that, 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 that usage, Sarah isn't actually speaking to anyone. She's talking to herself. And, and it's as she's talking to herself that she refers to her husband as the Lord. Now, and it's as though Peter is saying that, that Sarah's submission to Abraham, that this is something that, that ultimately was a heart posture. You know, it wasn't necessarily manifested in this act or that act, but there was a security that she had even after all of the crazy, stupid leadership mistakes that Abraham makes, that somehow Sarah has found in God a security, something that, 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 that satisfies, that, that, that is her treasure, that enables her even um, to, to say this about a guy who's as flawed and as, and as imperfect as Abraham is. <clears throat> and it's to drive home just what he's saying there. Peter adds that those who follow in Sarah's footsteps are also characterized um, by what well, he says here, a lack of fear. Now, this is huge because, first of all, there's all these instances where, where in Sarah's life where she had every right to fear Abraham's leadership. You know, she tries to, he tries to pawn her off as his sister in Egypt. And you know, even think about the time when Abraham leaves behind Ur. This is sort of the, the New York City of the ancient world to go to this faraway place you know, that, that, that she's never seen before. And she, she follows him. You know, how is Sarah able to rise above her fears And the answer is that it was because she had put her hope not in Abraham, but in God. So, man, I hope that you are are just seeing that there is so much here that I I believe is actually not bad news, but good news. I mean, just before we move on to the word that Peter addresses to husbands, I'm going to try to be quick and get to the end of this thing. Um, I want to step back really, really quick and just marvel at where we've gotten to so far. What Peter has been saying in this word to wives is that God desiring to exalt his son and his love for his bride has allowed men and women to fulfill different roles within marriage, which for wives is said here to be submission to their husbands. Yet in and through that, God's heart is not to form his daughters into docile or passive pushovers, but no. He's made the ridiculous promise that for women who hope in God, he can transform them into such character, to have such inner beauty and fearlessness fearlessness. I mean, that's what's on offer in this passage. And so I believe that if you kind of work carefully and you explain through the thorny bits, oh my goodness, there's so much good news in what this says. So now, men, it's your turn. Listen up. There's a word to husbands in this, and it's uh, the very last verse in verse seven. Let me read this, and then we'll just make a couple of quick comments as we close here. So, uh, verse seven, likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, there's some interesting things in there, too. You know, if you're a man here tonight, you might be wondering, what does he mean by your prayers being hindered? You know, I didn't even know that you could turn off the tap on that. Well, there's a beautiful reciprocity in this, first of all. First thing I want to say is, if you look at verses three and four, he's encur- Peter's encouraging wives to cultivate a kind of inward beauty. And now in verse seven, he's calling husbands to be a part of that. Specifically his instructions to husbands here is that they live with their wives in an understanding way. Now the first thing that this means at minimum is that husbands live with their wives. Now this might sound like a no-brainer here, but but you know there's this stereotype and I think there's some truth to it that men in particular can be real workaholics. And for some men, I believe that work is a fig leaf, another form of hiding um, the parts of yourself that, that, that deep down you may don't want people to see. It's maybe a way to avoid the awkward parts of home life that some men either don't like or don't know how to handle. And so what do they do? They hide themselves in work. Work so much that they're never at home. And so what Peter is exhorting men to do, husbands to do, is to be present, to be present to be present to your spouse, to be present to your your kids, to your families. And then he goes on. There's actually more than just presence here. He also calls husbands to be understanding. Now, okay, I'm sure there's a lot of different ways that you could take this, but at minimum, I want to suggest that at the very least, it's a call for husbands to be students of their spouses. If you're a husband, you should know your wife's joys, her fears, her fears her struggles, her burdens, her discouragements. Husbands should pursue their wives' hearts to be willing to enter in with her to her emotional world. And you know what? I think a lot of men might say that, you know, in order to do that, I might have to develop a little bit of an emotional world myself. Because again, you know, this is a stereotype. But the stereotype, I think, is true that a lot of men can be out of touch with their emotions. And I just want to say here that this is not Christ-like. You think I'm joking about this, but I'm serious. Listen, just, just look at the life of Jesus. You know, years ago, there was, a, there was an old-time theologian who wrote a little study called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And what he does in this is he goes through the Gospels and he observes just what a breadth and depth of emotion Jesus displayed while he was on earth. You know, he has deep, deep compassion for the crowds. He has fiery anger for the money changers in the temple. He, he is sobbing and weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. And he has this heartfelt, profound sorrow in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, and if you're a man here and you want to be Christ-like, stop stuffing your emotions. If you still don't believe me, just think about David, you know, one of the most godly, most masculine warriors in the Bible, but he's also quite the poet and quite the inner traveler. If you've ever read the Psalms, you know, Now, look, I just want to acknowledge that for men, this is kind of a hard thing. Entering into the emotional world of your significant other might even be more intimidating because deep down, I think that many guys fear that, man, once I I go there, I don't know that I'm actually going to have the the help and the nurture that my sisters in Christ really need. And so kind of in our own uniquely masculine way, we hide behind our various fig leaves, never actually willing to put ourselves out there for for, for our sisters in Christ because we're scared. And look, you know, if you've been around the block, you know, you'll, you'll have seen just how many marriages there are that are, that are dead or, or distant because somewhere along the line, a, the husband has ceased to be a student of his wife. You know, it's been said that men are really good at selling the products and not very good at the, the, the maintenance. <laughs> that, you know, that somewhere along the line, like he stopped pursuing his wife, stopped pursuing her heart. And Peter says, be understanding, know her, pursue her. And as it says in the next part of the verse, honor her. No, not just honor her, but, sh- but, but show honor. Um, and it says show honor here as the weaker vessel. Now, this is the last kind of landmine of the night for, for, for uh, all intents and purposes. And we've got to ask ourselves, what does this mean? Um, now, it goes without saying um, that this is, this is um, a, a challenging phrase. But, but it, it, it does say something pretty straightforward. It says that in some sense here, Peter is saying that there is something um, that, that is best described as weaker about the wife compared to the husband. Now, how do we wrestle with that? Um, now, first off, it's just worth pointing out that the, the English translation here is solid. You know, weaker in Greek just means weaker. <laughs> and the word vessel, that's just a common way of referring to a human being. And so with that in mind, there, there have been many people who kind of suggested different possibilities um, who have thought, well, maybe what Peter is saying is that women are, are weaker physically. You know, on average, um, that, you know, that would be something that he, he might say. Um, or, you know, others have thought that maybe he's saying that they're weaker in the sense that, on average, women might be more emotionally delicate. Um, Or, you know, there's the suggestion that women are said to be weaker here because they occupy a place of submission within the marriage itself. And uh, I hate to tell you this, but the truth of the matter is, um, we just don't know. Um, Peter doesn't tell us what he means by weaker vessel. And evidently, he just, for some reason, didn't think that it was necessary. Um, So I'm not going to try to speak where the Bible is silent. Um, But what is clear here is that in whatever way that men may have an advantage over women, whether because of men's physical strength or headship in marriage or whatever. The, 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 the call here is clear that men are to st- st- like stoop down on their knees and honor their wives above themselves. You know, they're called to use their strength not for their own gain, but to give themselves away. And this kind of loving care is, is so powerful that it also can be a dynamic witness. Now, I think this is what Peter means By his words here, that the husband's prayers not be hindered. And and the reason I say this is that we know, like as Christians, that we have direct access to God through Jesus Christ on the basis of his finished work on the cross. Now, therefore, what that means is that, you know, not even sin, even sin against one's spouse can forbid us from coming before God in prayer. You know, like if I get a speeding ticket on the way home, does that mean I can't, you know, pray to God when I get back home? You know, no. That's not ever been the basis of coming into God's presence at all. It's always been Jesus. So instead, what what Peter is likely saying here is that when you honor your wife, you're preventing anything hindering your prayers that she become a Christian. He's saying that a husband's lifestyle can woo her to Jesus, much as he wrote to wives in in verses 1 and 2. So that very briefly is the word to husbands. We've seen what he said to wives. We've seen what he said to husbands. And now as we just kind of land this thing, I mean, we go into small groups. I just want to really encourage you, and um, we're not going to like, you know, divide us up into guys and girls tonight, because you know, really the whole goal of here is like, man, um, how can we take what, what this passage has said and, and learn how you know how to be better brothers to our sisters and be better sisters to our brothers? Um, so as you guys talk tonight, I just want to really encourage you to listen well, um, to, th- to speak thoughtfully. Um, and, and, and if there are still things in this passage that you're wrestling with, that is just fine. That is so fine. Uh, I just want to encourage everyone else to just make space for that tonight um, as we go into small groups to look at what this passage says. Uh, but thank you for uh, just listening to me. I hope I haven't uh, merited too many tomatoes being chucked at me. Um, but as best as I know how, this is First Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. Let me pray for us. Um, Lord, thank you for taking my weak words um, that are probably um, (laughs) more weak than I can know. Um, And just, Lord, I just ask that you would have used um, just anything in this um, just to encourage us and point us to Jesus. Thank you for this passage. Thank you that it is good news. um, And just help us um, to embrace that and to live that out um, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.